0: Every um, couple of years, with my kids, we complete our our trek through the Bible. And depending on how old they are and how the Lord kind of leads us, we do that at different speeds. But every time we start over uh, and begin again in Genesis, I always start the same way with them. And I, I give to them... Um, more or less a a, a lecture, they would call it a lecture, I would call it a teaching or a time of uh, Bible study, you know, where I talk to them about the Bible itself. And oftentimes what I'll tell them is that God gave us the Bible to do essentially four things. Now we could expand that into 50,000 things, but for simplicity's sake, I'll narrow it down to four. And I'll tell them that God gave us the Bible to first of all teach us about himself, It's God's revelation of himself to man. But secondarily, God gave us the Bible to teach us about ourselves or to teach us about man because he made us, and thus the Bible is our instruction booklet to help us understand who we are and what we are. Thirdly, the Bible is given to us to help us know what life is all about. It's the book of life, and God says, my words are the words of life. And so he tells us about God, he tells us about ourself, he tells us about life, and then fourthly, I'll tell them, he gives to us through the Bible truth, that God wants us to know what is true, and because he is true, every word he speaks is true, and therefore every word of scripture is also true. Now God could have given us the Bible a thousand different ways. He could have just listed things out and just said, okay, well, here's the section on marriage and just given us all the facts about marriage, what it is and what it's designed for. He could have said, these are all the sins and just listed off sin after sin after sin. And he could have done that for everything, just listed it off. And he could have done that in so many different ways. But the way that God chose to give us the Bible to teach us about him and about us and about life and to lay down truth, is that he put it in the form of a narrative. That is, real lives and real people and their real issues and their real struggles and their real victories and real people facing things that are common to everybody. And then he laid that open to us so that we might not only learn from reading the things that they went through, But then as we relate to those things by laying our lives over the narrative of their lives, then we can recognize the reality of God and his truth through our own experience. And that's the way that God gave us the word. And so tonight, as we study King Josiah, we have such a character like that. And though he was a king And though he was a king of a foreign land to us and in a totally different time, yet his experience and the things that he did as he lived before the Lord and the things that happened to him are very applicable to us. And so we look at King Josiah tonight in chapter 22, and it says this in verse one, it says that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign now. Josiah is the last good king that Israel uh, is going to have and probably one of the best. He's held up even higher than Hezekiah, who we studied uh, in our last um, couple of studies. And he's really put right up next to David uh, in his character and the things that he did. Now, you'll recall that after King Solomon, David's son, reigned, the nation of Israel was split in two. 10 out of the 12 tribes separated up to the north. They rebelled against Jerusalem and they formed their own nation and they became known throughout the history as Israel. So when you read about Israel, that's the 10 tribes. Only two tribes remained in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and they are known as Judah. Now at this time that Josiah comes on the scene, The 10 northern tribes or Israel has already been carried away as captives to the Assyrians. They are no longer in their homeland, and that is because of their sin. So at this time, only two tribes remain in the land and that is Judah and Benjamin in the south, and their time is short-lived from this point on. They have Josiah, and then it's only a couple of years before they also are carried away as captives by this time the Babylonians, uh, where they will spend 70 years as servants and slaves um, to them. And so here we have this man Josiah that comes on the scene, and here's kind of the stage that he enters into. His great-grandfather, Hezekiah, reigned for 29 years, and those were good years in Israel. The people were following God. Uh, They were alive. There was a genuine revival. There was a putting away of evil, and the people were seeking after the Lord. But Hezekiah died, and his son, Manasseh, who took over for him and became the king, was the worst king that Judah had. And he reigned for 55 years. Now, if you can imagine having a president who was absolutely godless, who had no regard for the things of God at all, but on the contrary had a hunger and was prone to wickedness, and he reigned for 55 years and you could do nothing about it, what would that be like? And the depths of wickedness that Manasseh brought into the country after the good things that Hezekiah did brought them lower than they had ever been as a nation. In fact, when you read the prophets, you get the idea that God was more displeased with Judah and their sin than he was with Israel and theirs, who historically had always been the worse of the two. So Manasseh was real bad. Well, Manasseh's son took over after Manasseh, his name was Amon, and he only reigned for two years, and then he was assassinated. The people said, "Enough is enough. We've had it. We don't want you uh, or your, you know, father or his influence anymore in Israel." And thus now Josiah at the age of eight is put into this place, this position of king uh, on the throne. And the first lesson uh, that we learn from Josiah, and it's the first of six if you're taking notes tonight in his life, is, is first of all that you don't have to have a doctorate to make an impact for God. We see that he was eight years old when he began to reign. And in the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 35, which is the parallel passage to this, it tells us that when he was 16, that he began to follow after the Lord. And you get the idea that for the first eight years of this young, young boy's life, really, as he's just coming of age, he just has time to just sit back and observe all that's going on around him. He sees the wickedness that's taking place within the land. He sees the kind of advisors and the influences that his father surrounded himself with. He sees all of that wickedness and the corruption that came with it and the darkness that you could feel in the land because of the influence of that wickedness. And then he began to hear stories about King David and about the glory of Israel and the days of Solomon and what things were like. And even as a young man, he began to, Understand that there are two paths that you can choose in life. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, and it was the road that Israel was on. But there was a narrow path, a better path, something that was higher, that spoke of something greater, something that Israel was called to, a destiny, a calling that was placed upon them, and something that he wanted, something that he hungered for. So that at the age of 16, he made a decision and he said, I'm not going to go the way of my father and the way of my grandfather, but I'll go the way of my great grandfather and the way of my ancestor, David, and the way of my great ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to serve the Lord. And so at the age of 16, he began to seek after the Lord. And at the age of 20, he began to clean up the land. A lot of the things that we'll read tonight took place when he was just a young man of 20 years old. And I think that why God so carefully preserves for us the ages at which Josiah made these decisions was to point out to us that God doesn't need you to be gray-headed or seasoned in life in order to use you greatly within the world. Now, that doesn't also mean that you have to be young and inexperienced. I think God wants us to understand that no matter what age you are, if you have a heart for God, God, He can use you greatly. I think of Joseph, who was just 17 when God began to work within his life. I think of a young David who barely had any facial hair at the time God called him and saw a heart in him that was worthy that he began to make him the king. I think of Daniel and his friends who were just teenagers when they were carried away into Babylon and how God used the young man's life affecting him at an early age. I think of the apostles and how not one of them was probably over the age of 30. The Apostle John himself, probably not out of his teenage years when he had his first encounter with Jesus Christ. And we see how God can use a young life. And what he's looking for is not a person who's educated or seasoned, but he's looking for someone whose heart is completely separated unto him. And God can do great things with that life. You might be here tonight and you might think, well, God can't use me because I'm uneducated or I'm too young or I don't know anything. Listen, if you give your heart completely to God, God can do with your life things that you could never do for yourself. The same thing is true for those of you that might think tonight, well, I'm too old. I'm too far gone. God can no longer use me because I miss the flower of my age and I no longer have the strength of my youth. Not true. Again, you scan the pages of scripture and you look and read and see. Abraham was 75 years old when he was first called. And things didn't start cooking until he was 100. Moses thought that because he was young, he could be used. And God's will wasn't to use him until he was 80. And so God can use any person who says, God, I am yours. And whatever you want to do in my heart and with my life, Lord, I belong to you. And so Josiah teaches us that you don't have to have a doctorate to be effective for God. You just need a heart that is after God. The second lesson uh, that Josiah's life teaches us, and it it starts in in verse um, 3. Actually, let's read up to that point. It says that he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And it says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of David, his father, and he turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Now that's a phrase that we see used in scripture from time to time, turning to the right hand or to the left. Now we can interpret that just very simply in the same context that we use that phrase today. We talk about those that go lean to the right, and that is that they're very conservative. And then we talk about those that lean to the left, and our implication is that they are very liberal. Now take that and lay it over a walk with the Lord, and you have the same thing. You have some people that can lean very far to the right in the things of God, and the idea is that they are pharisaical, legalistic, adding to, making it more strict than it really is. And then there are those that go to the left and they're very liberal. They take away from the word of God and they make the word of God watered down and less. What we're called to do is walk the straight and narrow path and not look to the right or to the left. And that's exactly what Josiah did. Well, it says it came to pass in the 18th year now of King Josiah. So at this time, he's 26 years old and he's been reigning for uh, now 18 years And he begins a cleanup in the temple. It says that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, or count the money, which the keepers of the door have gathered to the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. So wherever the the temple is broken down, deliver the money to the carpenters and the masons and let them get this place back in order. And so unto the carpenters and the builders, the masons to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house, howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. And so such faithfulness on the part of the contractors uh, that they don't even have to turn in the books or hand in the receipts. They just knew that what they were doing, they were doing it uh, faithfully as unto the Lord. And it says that Hilkiah, the high priest, said unto Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Now, that blows my mind to consider that the Bible was lost in church. That here you have them going through the temple, cleaning it up, and someone stumbles on a book and says, hey, what's that? And they realize this is the law of God. And what it does is it gives us a picture of why things were the way that they were in Israel in those days. The word of God was lost. Well, watch what happens. So Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought the king word again and said, thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest had delivered me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass that when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothing, which again is an outward symbol of an inward response. And here we find the second lesson um, that we learned from the life of this young, uh, great King Josiah. And that is that the amount of distance that exists between society or a person and the word of God will be proportionate to the degree of wickedness that exists in that society or in that individual's life. We see that uh, um, Josiah orders the repairs of the temple here. And in that process, they stumble upon a copy of the word of God and the law is found. Now that just blows my mind right there to consider that the word of God could be missing in the house of the Lord. Hezekiah, his great grandfather, had been very careful to preserve and to keep all of the words of God. But then Manasseh, his son was very careful to quench or extinguish the influence of the word of God in in the life of Israel and in the lives of the people. And so in Manasseh's day, the word of God was so buried and so destroyed that you could even infer that had this copy of the law not been found at the time that it was, then perhaps it's possible that the whole testimony of God's Torah or law would have been lost. Perhaps even tonight we're reading from the word of God because of this discovery that was made, God preserving his word and however he did that they were able to find it uh, in that thing. But Manasseh completely removed the word of God from its place within the temple. Now look what happened between the time of Hezekiah and the time of Manasseh in the nation. In the time of Hezekiah, there was revival, there was blessing and glory. In the time of Manasseh, there was wickedness exceeding so, so much so that God wanted to extinguish his presence from Israel and cast them out. In fact, it will be because of the sins of Manasseh that God will ultimately thrust Judah into uh, the place of judgment. And the difference between the two reigns, Hezekiah and Manasseh, was the influence of the word of God upon the people. It's interesting to me that it began in the temple that the word of God was lost in the temple. How does the word of God get lost in a temple? How does the word of God get lost in a church? It's happening today. It's amazing to me to realize that it's hard to find churches where the Bible is taught. The Bible is talked about. The Bible is referenced. Sometimes the Bible is even read. But more and more we see it happening that the Bible is disappearing and its influence is disappearing from the lives of people, even the people of God. And the result of that, when we look at how it's affected society, is that society is falling apart at the seams. And the reason for that is because of the absence of the word of God. There's a tremendous pressure that exists upon churches to grow. And that that pressure is upon pastors. That pressure is put upon church boards. It's put upon elders and leaders. It's put upon just the very reputation of a church is that that church needs to be growing. In the United States of America today, the one benchmark of health that matters in things is growth. which starts from the time that we're little kids. How are we growing? Are you growing up? As we go into school and we uh, work our way through our subjects, oftentimes, how are you growing in your understanding of these things? If someone has a business, the, the health of that business is measured by whether it's growing or how much it's growing. An economy is, and the health of that economy is measured in terms of growth and how it's growing. And sadly, that same measurement of health has been translated into churches. And if a church isn't growing, then the perceived health of that church is small. And that puts tremendous pressure on those that are running the church to make sure that at least there's the appearance of growth. Otherwise, the idea is that the church isn't healthy. Now, oftentimes, the way the word of God works within a person's life to bring forth spiritual fruit and spiritual maturity is a very long process. It doesn't happen overnight. And so in order to get the kind of growth that the pressure indicates that you have to have, the recourse is to remove the word of God from the church and to replace it with something else. Do something entertaining. Do something that is going to grab people's attention. Do something that is dramatic or something that is emotional in its uh, appeal or whatnot. Whatever it is to try to grow the church without the word. And the result is that you have very weak Christians, and then the result of that is that you have a society that's turning more and more away from God and the things of God. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the New Testament, and he said this in in Second Timothy chapter four, verse one. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. He says, preach the word be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and they shall be turned unto fables. Paul says that it's going to be a mark of the last times when the society is turning away from God, that the word of God is going to become less of an influence and other things are going to replace that influence because people don't want to endure the doctrine of the word. He paints a picture of what that looks like in chapter three. He says, know this also that in the last days, perilous times will come. away and then just a few verses down when paul directs it from what it will be to what timothy should do he says in verse 14 there but you continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of knowing of whom you have learned them and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in christ jesus for all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto every good work and so paul lays out for timothy that the reason why society is turning and will turn continually is because of the lessened impact and influence that the word of god has upon that society isaiah chapter 55 Uh, Verses 10 and 11, Isaiah the prophet tells us why the word of God is so valuable and why it cannot be replaced. Um, Of course, that's the one place where I didn't put a a bookmark. But it says that that as the rain comes from heaven and the snow falls from heaven and it waters the earth that it may bring seed to the sower and give bread to the eater, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. He says, it will not return unto me void, but it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. And the idea is this, is that God says that the power of my word that sets it apart from every other thing and every other influence in the world is that tucked inside of my word is the power and the potency for it to perform the thing that it promises. Nothing else can do that. And when you have a God who's holy and that God who's holy gives a holy word and in that word he gives commands and he says that this is what life is about and this is who I am and this is who you are and this is what truth is. But then he attaches to that word at the same time the power to bring the life of the reader of that word in alignment with what that word says and what it implies and who it is proclaiming then that word becomes the most powerful thing in the whole universe. And so that's why God says that we cannot become separated from the word of God. And if we as Christians give up the word of God or the place that it's to have within our life, or if we as churches in our country give up the place of the word of God as standing central in who we are and what it does within our hearts, then we're going to begin to replace the influence it has with something else. And whatever that influence is, it's always going to turn us away and it's always going to lead to wickedness. And thus, as Josiah hears the word of God read, something that's been absent for so long now, he can see very clearly the abyss that exists between what they are and what they should be according to God's standard and what he wants. And when he sees it, something happens inside of it, and he says, no, this isn't right We're not where we're supposed to be as a people and as a nation and as individuals. We've become twisted and corrupt and the judgment of God is upon us because of it. And so he tears his clothes at the understanding of what that means as he realizes that uh, we've been hijacked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And that's always gonna be true is that whether it's a church or whether it's an individual life, if there is distance created between us and the word of God, then in the same proportion of that distance, there's gonna be wickedness. And that's what took place in the land. And it's what Josiah uh, recognized and realized in the whole thing. And so what's his response? He tears his clothes. And then it says in verse 12, it says that the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the scribe, and Esahiah, the servant of the kings, saying, Go ye and inquire of the Lord for me, pray to the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He realizes, he reads page after page of Deuteronomy and he says, we, we, God warned us about this. He told us that if we turned aside, that these would be the consequences and we've blown through every roadblock. So go and pray, find someone, find out what is the word of God for us concerning these things that are written. So it says in verse 14, that Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Asahiah went unto Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, which was the second ward or the the basically we would say in the projects, or she lived in the in the uh, the, the lower income bracket of housing in the city of Jerusalem, and it says that they communed with her now that's remarkable to me. Because here you have the very high priest himself, Hilkiah, the man who is to be the representation of God to the people of the nation. And even he doesn't have the kind of relationship with God that it takes to understand the implications of the word that they read. And so they said, where are we going to find someone who's got a good enough relationship with God that we could actually even ask them to pray for us to find out what we're supposed to do? And someone says, well, I know someone it's the wife of a tailor who lives on the poor side of town who really is nothing before, you know, in terms of anything, but she knows God. Now, Here's why I like that. Because what it tells me is this, is that God doesn't need a prophet or a pastor or a priest in order to help someone find their way back to God or to get counsel from God. He just needs the wife of a tailor who fears him and loves him and respects his word. And what we have right here, right here in this room right now is a room full, and I include myself in this, is a room full of haldas. Because you might be a person right now that that they look at you and they make fun of you and they mock you and they call you a Jesus freak or a born-againer or a fundamentalist or whatever it is or a Christian or a thumper. They call you all kinds of things, but they know in that moment of need where to turn when that moment of need comes and they come to you because they know that you have a relationship with God. And so they come to this woman, Huldah, to ask, what are we supposed to do in light of all that we have just learned and seen? And it says that she said unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, tell the man that sent you to me this, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place. And upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book, which the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. Now that is a remarkable prophecy that this woman gives concerning the thing. Because time after time, God has relented from his wrath and he's given them space that if they would repent in turn, that God would also forestall his wrath upon them. But in this instance, God says, no, no, it's too late. And you say, well, why is it that God would be so harsh in the thing? And here's the reason. Because the seed has been sown and the harvest will come. But he says, and I'm so glad there's a but there, To the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which you have heard. Because thine heart was tender, and you have humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you've torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord." Behold, therefore, I will gather you unto your fathers and you will be gathered into your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought uh, the king word again. And and the third lesson really that we learn from Josiah, and it's through this um, interaction with Huldah and the response that she gives, is that God knows how to deliver and protect the godly in times of judgment. Huldah gives this word to them and she says that the judgment of God is coming upon the land because of the evil. And and specifically, she says, because the people have forsaken me. Now at this time, the prophet Jeremiah is on the scene and he has a ministry in Judah to those that remain of Israel in the land. And one of the indictments that Jeremiah brought early on in his ministry is the very thing that Huldah, the prophetess, confirms here. Through Jeremiah, the Lord spoke to the people and he said, my people have committed two evils. One is that they've forsaken me and two is that they've hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, in those days when you needed water, you didn't get a whole lot of rainfall in Israel. And so you basically had two options. You could dig a cistern, which meant making a solid Rock cavern that could hold water and catch runoff so that you would have spares in those days Or you could go to the spring one of the springs the spring of Gihon Or there was a big spring up in dan where there was a water source that was there And god called himself the spring of living water and he said that the people had forsaken him And what they traded him for was a cistern But it was a broken cistern that couldn't hold water And anytime a person forsakes the Lord, that's what they're doing. They're trading a fountain of living water that's giving and lasting for something that can't ultimately satisfy. It's supposed to, it promises that there'll be something there, but it's broken on the bottom. And that's what God accuses the people of in this whole thing. And thus they forsook him uh, and judgment would come because of it. But God says to Josiah, that he's going to live out his days in peace upon the land because of his faithfulness uh, to God. And so comfort is spoken to him. In the book of 2 Peter, which really you could lay over kind of uh, this period of uh, Israel's life, Peter's writing to basically new believers. And the exhortation of Peter to them is how to grow in their faith. And in chapter two, he talks about the danger of false teachers and false teaching that's coming. And he gives these examples and he says this uh, to them in there. First of all, he references the angels that fell. And he says that there were some angels that sinned, Satan and his henchmen, and that they were cast out of heaven, but God spared those that didn't fall. Then God references through Peter, the flood. And he said that the flood came, the judgment of God came upon the world of the ungodly But God spared Noah in his household. And then he gives a third example. He cites Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment of God fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But God delivered Lot and his wife from Sodom and his two daughters before the judgment of God came, and then he sums up the examples that he gives there by saying in 2 Peter chapter two, verse nine, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation or out of trials and to reserve the ungodly uh, for destruction and so whats what 's the point of all this Here it is is that Israel had gotten to a point in their backsliding and their turning away from the Lord that No longer was it gonna happen that there would be a nationwide revival. But God would still save, but it would be a case-by-case basis. We see that happening even in our day today. We look at the condition that our nation and our world is in and how far we've fallen from God and the things of God. And we pray for revival and we ask God to open blind eyes and to do again what he's done in times past that we read about where there were great awakenings And God opened the eyes of a whole generation and turned the hearts of the fathers and the sons to himself. And we pray for that today. But what we're seeing in the midst of our wicked uh, generation is not so much an outpouring of God upon a whole group of people, but we are seeing individual people that are coming awake like Josiah did, that are hearing the word of God and coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and turning their lives to Christ again. And God is saving those people. And here's the word of the Lord in a day such as ours where we see judgment coming upon our land is that yes, God is going to judge the wickedness of those that have turned aside, but he knows how to deliver the godly out of that time of judgment. God said, judgment is coming upon this land, but you, Josiah, are going to live out your days in peace uh, in the whole thing. And it comes to a point um, in every generate or every uh society where judgment will come when people turn uh their back upon the lord and so um he's given this word and so it says in in uh, chapter 23 it says that the king sent and they gathered unto him all the elders of judah and jerusalem and so here's his response now uh, how he's going to take this information what he's going to do with it and it says that the king went up into the house of the lord and all the men of judah And all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears, all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord, no doubt, hoping that it will have the same effect in their hearts that it had in his, when he read it and the King stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. And so what we see take place and it really uh, encompasses the first 27 verses of this chapter and it's uh, the fourth lesson that we learn through the life of Josiah is this and it's that reformation and promise is not equal to transformation and relationship. Reformation and promise is not equal to transformation and relationship. What we see here is we see Josiah read the word to the people and then he himself makes a covenant to God and then he gives an altar call. So it's a church service that just took place. He reads the word. He says, this is what we need to do and everybody who's in stand up and say "I." And it tells us that all of the people stood up. I mean, it was a glorious altar call. They would have left that service and they would have said, man, God really moved the whole assembly of those men of Judah and those that came, they stood before the Lord. But what these people stood for is for a reform in their behavior and an allegiance to Josiah. But there was no transformation that would take place in their heart. That's what we're gonna see. And so what we're gonna see is not just what initiates the reforms, but then we're gonna see the action of those reforms and it will be followed by the outcome of those uh, reforms as we see that the people went along with what Josiah said, but in their heart, they were just doing it because Josiah did it. And so what were the, um, the reforms that Josiah brought to the land? It tells us in verse four that the king then commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal. Now, can you imagine that, that there were vessels made to honor the false god Baal and they were in the temple of God and for all the host of heaven and they burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and they carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Now, I like this guy when you begin to see the things that he's going to do and the way that he does them, it's amazing. And the first thing that he does is he removes the influence of Baal from the temple of the Lord and from the presence of those that were in Judah. And then it says that he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem them also that burned incense unto Baal to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the host of heaven those that worshipped the zodiac and that gave themselves to uh, their horoscopes and to making plans and seeking um, a god of fate and not a god who is to be sought by faith and it says that he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord. Now, if you're reading from a New King James or another translation, it will say the Azura pole or the Azurim. And, and literally what these were, these groves, is that they were pornographic images, phallic uh, type statues that were made uh, a, as an honor to the god of, um, you know, Azura, which was the god of uh, of sex that, that was worshipped predominantly in those days, even, even to these days. But it says that he took it. Now, if you wanted to, anytime you see that word grove or that word Astra or uh, Azurim, you could just circle it and close by it, you could write the word porn. Because that's what it was. It was just basically the same exact thing uh, in in those days as what we have in our days. And this is what he did with it. It says um, that he brought the grove out from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem unto the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron. And he stamped it small to powder. And he cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. Now that's some zeal. That's taking sin and something that's a stumbling block to a nation and that's removing it and removing its influence from the people so that it no longer has that place where where it influences them and, and corrupts and pollutes them. And then it says that he broke down the houses of the sodomites or the male prostitutes that were by the house of the Lord where the woman wove hangings for the grove. Sometimes you hear stories about like uh, what Rudy Giuliani did in Manhattan when he became the mayor uh, after the corruption of, of the late 70s and 80s. And, and, you know, you just get the idea that Manhattan was just this this horrible, wretched place. And he just went in there and kind of cleaned it up. And, and that's the picture that I get of what Jerusalem had become like under the reign of Manasseh it, is that you'd go to the temple and you'd be going to the temple because you want to learn something about God. But on the right hand and on the left hand of the temple. You'd see a massage parlor, but you knew what what that really was when you saw that massage parlor. And Josiah knew what it was. And so he goes in there and he he gets all of it. He broke the houses right down. And and, and, uh, And then it says that he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were in the entering in of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places came not up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they did eat of the unleavened bread among their brethren. And what this would be is a slap in the face to those priests. As Josiah basically said, okay, it's appointed of God that you eat the bread, but you're no longer going to serve in the temple. You're going to get the pay that's promised you, But you don't get the honor of serving God. And the statement that's being made through that is that what you get to do in service to the Lord is the honor and the privilege. And the reward of it is the fact that you get to do the service, not the pay. The pay is secondary. But you'll continue to get the pay because God says we're supposed to pay you. But you're disqualified. You're done. You're no longer going to serve in the house of the Lord in that way. And it says that he defiled Topheth which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. That was the abortion clinic of the day. He went through and he closed every planned parenthood that existed uh, within the the, the bounds of Israel uh, that was remaining and in Judah. That's what they would do with the Molechs is they would sacrifice their living babies on the white, hot, molten arms of this uh, little statue God. And it was all... um, You know, it was the same exact thing that we do today in in our country. And and it says that he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord did the king beat down and he broke them down from thence, and he cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had builded for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. Now you recall that Solomon late in his life had built these shrines on the Mount of Olives. I mean, the Mount of Olives is the mount where you go when you want to overlook the entire uh, landscape of, of Jerusalem. It was a sacred place. And yet Solomon had defiled it to the point where now it's called the Mount of Corruption. And it says that he broke in pieces the images and cut down the groves and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel And the high place, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made both the altar and the high place, he broke down and he burned the high place, and he stamped it small to powder, and he burned the grove. It amazes me that that place even still existed. At this point, it was in the historical society, but he didn't care. He said it's going down, and he he broke it down. And then it says that as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchers or the graves that were there in the Mount and he sent and he took the bones out of the sepulchers and he burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now, before we breeze right over this and you say, okay, there's the prophecy of the man of God who proclaimed these words to proclaim them. This is remarkable. In 1 Kings chapter 13, that's a while ago, back in our studies, and it's 325 years before this moment, when Jeroboam, that first wicked king of the north, had made the altar in Bethel, to, to, to you know, the, the false altar of Jeroboam. It says that there came a man of God out of Samaria... And he prophesied against the altar in the presence of Jeroboam, the king. And he decried the altar and he cursed it in the name of the Lord. And he said, men's bones are going to be burned on you by a king that's coming whose name is Josiah. He called him by name 325 years before he was born. And when Jeroboam heard those words, he said, stop that man, seize him, arrest him. And when he pointed to him, his hand shriveled up. And then he said, pray for me, pray for me. And the man of God prayed for him and his hand was restored. Now, that man, that same prophet, ended up dying a few days later because he disobeyed. Remember? I don't know if you remember the story, but remember? He he was told, speak the word, then go home. And I'm telling you this for a reason. I'm not on a tangent here. It's going to come back around in a minute. But he said, speak the word and then go home. But he didn't. He said to the first guy i can't eat bread or drink water in this place but then the second guy said no i'm a prophet like you and god told me to tell you that it's okay and he disobeyed the lord because the prophet was older than him and he ended up dying because of it hang on to that thought but that's what it's talking about here we'll we'll come back to in a moment and so verse 17 it says then he said what title is this that i see and the men of the city told him, it is the sepulcher of the man of God, which came from Judah, who proclaimed these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him alone, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone and the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. And all the houses of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the king of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger, Josiah took away and did to them according to all the acts that he had done in Bethel. And he slew the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars. And they burned men's bones upon them and then returned to Jerusalem. And it says that the king commanded all the people saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, so that gives you a time frame wherein all this took place. It was fast. It says, wherein this Passover was holden to the Lord in Jerusalem. When you read about it in Chronicles, uh, three quarters of chapter 35 of Second Chronicles is dedicated to describing this Passover. And Josiah himself provided over 40,000 uh, animals to be sacrificed so that everyone could partake of it. And it, and it says here that there was never a Passover like that. Uh, since the days of the judges when Samuel was on the scene. And what this is a picture of is that the blood of the lamb became central in the nation again for the first time in hundreds of years. And that's a wondrous thing. That the blood of the lamb became center stage again. That's what the Passover represented. It says, moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and uh, all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And so all of the reforms that Josiah made, he removed every shred and influence of wickedness that he could get his hands on and he did it with the greatest zeal that he could possibly muster. And then he kept the Passover uh, like no other um, in hundreds of years. And then it summarizes um, his life and it kind of gives an outcome of all of this reform. It says that like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after them him arose there any like him. So in some ways, he even stood apart from King David. It says that there was none like him before him and there was none like him after him. And it says that he served the Lord with all his heart, all his soul and all his might. Now, we think of our own life now and we look at the context that we live in today and we consider the nation that we live in. And as we look at the wickedness that was taking place in Israel in those days, we can see the parallel wickedness taking place in our own country. And part of us says, okay, well, I understand that Josiah made all of these reforms and he destroyed all of that wickedness. But how would we translate that into our experience today? I mean, the structure of wickedness that has been erected in our country is so great. I don't even know how anyone could do this. In fact, if the president of the United States tomorrow became born again, and he came born again with the same level of zeal and commitment that Josiah did, I don't think he could do the kinds of things that Josiah did. Because the structure of evil and the committees and the councils and the boards that have been erected to, to support and buttress the policies that, that exist today, it's beyond the ability of one man, even if he's the president, to be able to tear all of that down. I mean, we, we could very well be at a point in our country where it's impossible to undo the wickedness that's been done in the name of the Lord and in the face of the Lord. So you say, well, then what does all this mean to me? It's a great exhortation, but for me, it's just history because how does it translate? Listen, what about in your own life? What about in our own homes? What about in the things that we give ourselves to? Do we have the same level of zeal against evil and its influence before us and before our homes and before our children as he had for a nation? We may not be able to do it on a national level, but we certainly can do it in our homes and on a personal level. But are we willing to serve the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind and all of our strength as Josiah did? Now here's the sad part, verse 26. It says, notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal." And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off the city Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house, which I've said, my name shall be there. Now that blows my mind because every other time there's been reform on this level, God has said, okay, I will withhold, I will forestall. So why is it now that it's different? In Jeremiah chapter 3, and we're almost done, by the way. I know it's late. I appreciate your patience tonight. We are only going to go up through verse uh, 30. And so we're almost um, at our goal. But let me read you this short passage from Jeremiah chapter 3 because it sheds light on what was going on under the surface in the nation. See, on the surface, there was revival. On the surface, I mean, man, this is radical Christianity like we haven't seen in this land in hundreds of years. But under the surface, God saw something else. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. It says that the Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. That speaks of idolatry. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn unto me, and she returned not. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. So Judah saw the warning that I gave to Israel. And when I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, that I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement, yet her treacherous sister, Judah, feared not, but went and played the harlot also. In other words, the way God summarizes what he sees from heaven is that Israel in the north transgressed and were wiped out judah saw that and should have taken warning they should have realized hey if god wiped them out then we better walk in the fear of god and so it came to pass verse 9 through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks And yet, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. That is, the appearance was that they had turned back to God. But when God looked at the hearts of the people, what he saw in the heart was that the only reason that they were going along with these reforms that Josiah was instituting was because he was doing it and that he was the king. It was fake. It was phony. Ezekiel, who was also prophesying at this time in chapter 33, God spoke to Ezekiel and he said, Ezekiel, these people, don't be deceived by them. He said, they come and they sit before you and they hear your words and they talk about you. They even go outside after the service and they talk about how wonderful you are and they invite people to come into your services and listen to you prophesy and preach. But he says, don't listen to a word you say because they come in and... And they honor you with their lips and they show much love because you're like one that plays well on an instrument who has a nice voice to sing with. They listen to your words, but they don't do them. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And God sees that that was the condition of the day. And I wonder what God sees when he looks at the United States of America today. I wonder what God sees when he looks at a church that's 18,000 people or a church of 6,000 people, or even a church of 70 people. What does God see when he looks over it? He sees our heart. The Bible says that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we deal. What does God see when he looks at us? He doesn't look at the outward things that we do with our behavior, what we say. He looks at what's going on in our heart and is our heart completely turned to him? And so God said they'll be carried away because of it. Well, the conclusion of Josiah. His life in verse 28, he says, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates and King Josiah went against him and he slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. And his servants carried him in a chariot, dead from Megiddo, and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own sepulchre. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and they anointed him and they made him uh, king in his father's place. The, The lesson that we learned from Josiah at the end of his life is this, is that an unprotected strength is a weakness. The great strength of Josiah's life was his zeal for God and the zeal with which he carried out his tasks for God. And it happened a little bit later on when he was 39 years old that one of the pharaohs, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, made an incursion against the king of Assyria. And when Josiah saw it, in his zeal, he thought, I'm going to stop this from happening. I don't want there to be a stronger force of enemy around me. And so without prayer and without counsel, he went up and he faced Pharaoh Necho in battle in the Valley of Megiddo. And in Chronicles, it tells us that Pharaoh Necho warned him. And he says, don't meddle in this. This is none of your business. This is God's work and you need to go home. And in Chronicles, it says that that was the word of the Lord for Josiah. God gave warning to Josiah that he needed to back off, that it was none of his business. And he was meddling. But he wasn't meddling out of pride like some of his predecessors had. He was meddling out of zeal. And in his zeal, his life was taken at the age of 39. And so the weakness of a zealot or someone who's zeal is that they have a tendency to move on presumption and not operate through prayer. And that's what he did. And no doubt he was thinking to himself, okay, well, um, I'm 39 years old. I'm right in the prime of things, and I don't have to worry about this. Even if it turns sideways, I'll be okay in the long run. Not so. That was presumption. He ended up losing his life. Or maybe he was thinking, Haldus said I'm going to go down in peace, that I'm not going to see the destruction of the days. And so he took a promise that was given for something else, and he tried to apply it to something that he did prayerlessly, and it ended up costing him his life. And it's interesting to me that he even forgot what happened to the very prophet who prophesied of him. Remember? That very prophet who prophesied him by name 325 years before he was born. Yeah, eaten by a lion, taken home early because of presumption, not obeying the voice of the Lord. And what happens to Josiah here is that, yes, he's spared from the judgment to come, But he's taken off the scene because of a weakness of zeal in moving prayerlessly into something that was none of his business. And what it did is it didn't undo the good that he did, but it ruined his legacy. Because right after he's taken off the scene, things are gonna go just as sideways as they had been during the days of Manasseh. And part of the reason for that is because of his mistake that he made right here. See, if I'm his son... And I'm looking at the life of my father who just did all these great things. And I say, well, he did all this great stuff for God, but it didn't work out so good for him, did it? Why should I? And it ruined the legacy. So what's the application of it is don't let zeal for God remove you from the place of prayer and dependence or embolden you to move outside of your calling uh, or of the fear of God. And don't, ever assume that just because other people have stepped out of God's will and survived it, that it'll be okay if you do the same thing. And It applies to whatever your strength is. Whatever your strength is, if that strength is unchecked before the Lord, that strength is a net weakness. And so we see Josiah, uh, the life of Josiah, and his life encourages us to early in life, take a step back, ponder that there are two paths in this world, And make a careful decision which one you're going to walk on. And then he teaches us to not allow distance between you and the word of God. And he teaches us that whatever he has called you to do, do it with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the testimony that's before us of this uh, great king. Who left us such an incredible testimony and through whom we can learn so much. And Father, we're asking tonight, Lord, that as we uh, read these words, that they would search our hearts. Lord, that you would put your finger on those places in our life where we have served you with our lips, but we've forsaken you with our behavior. And Lord, that you might adjust and align us with what you would want us to be. And we look to you for this, and we know, Lord, that you can do exceedingly beyond what we could ask or think. We pray, Lord, that you would bring revival to our nation. That we would live before you, pleasing to you once again. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.